Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby here from the Digital Shelf Institute. We live in the most interesting times with both the blessings and the curses that come with that. In retail and commerce today, that means processing all the noise of short-term inputs against longer trends and core truths and deciding what investments to make and roads to take. Tom Goodwin, a retail consultant, author, and speaker, and asker of the occasionally annoyingly perceptive question, brings his latest views on the interesting times we live in, the opportunities that await, and the importance of often choosing the simplest path as the most meaningfully consequential. So, Tom, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, I am an avid follower on Twitter. I, I your your perspective and and thoughts and uh, and fresh thinking that urges people on to to new thoughts is just really impressive. And we're so delighted to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You, you kind of have one of the coolest jobs in the sector. You really get to observe trends and, and help brands sort of know where to spend time next. And I thought we'd start out just by, uh, I don't know whether it's the elephant in the room right now or not, but certainly we're, we're out of first quarter earnings. Um, well, we're almost almost out of first quarter earnings. You know, we're all aware of some of the headwinds uh, in the in the economy and uh, stuff happening around the world that that is is uh, you know certainly changing short to midterm macroeconomic things, uh, the R word it's for our listeners, that's recession. So anyway, I was just wondering, what are you seeing out there? You know, when you look, sit back and look at the, the environment in the next like 18 months uh, and talking to your clients and looking at the data, what, what pops out to you? You know, what are you sort of when people say, all right, Tom, how should we be thinking about this? What do you say? It's a very, very complicated picture. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's almost like a fractal. And the more you look at the data, the more things seem quite chaotic. And I wouldn't go so far as to say unprecedented, but just quite strange. You know, so we've got, um, you know, quite low consumer confidence at the same time as having very high consumer spending. Um, we've gone from having people with more disposable income and greater savings than they've ever had um, to a period where, uh, you know, unemployment has been incredibly low. And then suddenly we appear to be on the sort of cliff edge with, you know, dramatic uh, announcements of job cuts. And we see lots of technology stocks in particular performing badly. And it sort of created all of this energy that no one's really made sense of. Um, I think part of the problem is that we're dealing with um, a response to unprecedented times. You know, so when companies are measuring their quarter on quarter earnings, they're comparing what is perhaps a normal quarter and a sort of historically typical quarter um, with two years of completely sort of bizarre and interim yeah. changes of behavior. I mean, my role is very much about a sort of high altitude approach where the, the details um, are less important than the sort of big picture um, that spans different sectors as well as different geographies. Um, so broadly speaking, we are kind of at a point in time which is similar to where we would have been if the pandemic never happened. So things like e-commerce for grocery is at levels that we would have predicted it would have been at before. 
And what we're really seeing, I think, is companies trying to make sense of the current environment. So how can they do e-commerce, but do so in a way which is profitable rather than just simply chasing growth? Um, we've seen a lot of direct-to-consumer companies um, really suffer with some of the sort of typical problems that small companies would have, typical problems of brand awareness, um, typical problems of scale, typical problems of logistics. They're just slightly different flavors of problems to that that we've had before. But, but generally speaking, we're in an environment that we probably could have predicted and one where our retail gut and our retail experience will actually help us through. Um, so how can we make it easy for people to buy things that we make a profit from? How can we make it easier to increase basket spend? How can we can make it easier um, to increase frequency of purchase? How can we engage in programs to make people more likely to come back more often and spend more? You know, we're facing fairly similar questions to those that we've always had. And we have a slightly different toolkit to, to solve those problems with. Yeah. And when you think about it, the the... Hopefully, the investments that have been made to kind of bring a lot of companies' digital capabilities up during this uh, this this period of, of transformation now creates the opportunity to really respond to the changes in consumer behavior and the places they want to shop by. And now that they're you know omni-channel, multi-channel, whatever I don't know. I'd love to know what your word is for all that. But um, <laughs> I, yeah, g- give me a sense of of sort of you know, taking it back to sort of what counts, which is knowing your consumer and understanding them. What are you seeing as the changes in consumer behavior that create opportunities for the right kind of transformation in this period? There's a lot there. Um, So the changes (laughs) in consumer behavior, (laughs) the changes in consumer behavior that I see are almost the time-honored principles of what it is to be a human and to buy things, but slightly sort of abstracted into the world of technology where we can do things slightly differently. But the tenant of offering choice, but curation, um, the ability to make it easy and slightly delightful to buy things, this idea of having a degree of trust in the companies that you're buying from, you know, these have all been slightly exaggerated by by technology, but not really sort of morphed beyond what we could have seen coming. So I think almost every single, if not every single principle of retail that we've had in our heads, you know, since the 1950s and 60s, um, we can operate with those same principles, but almost apply Um, new technology to do those things slightly better or slightly differently. Um, And, you know, you you made a very good point before, which is the companies that have invested in this infrastructure and in this capability, you know, over the last sort of five or 10 years, I think are the ones that can really thrive now. Um, It it sounds sort of horrible to put it this way, but in a way, um, the dreaded R word is almost the way that evolution happens. Like it's quite sort of Darwinian. Mm. And what we've really had is so much free money and uh, so much enthusiasm for every single new company around um, that put together a good investor deck. There wasn't really the ability for people to 
um, be more discerning. You know, there, there wasn't really the economic environment where stupid companies failed. Um, and it's a bit like, I think it's an old sort of Warren Buffet quote about you when you get to see who's naked when the tide goes out. Um, I think what we're really seeing is um, the tide going out and we now get to see companies who've invested in the right things. We get to see companies that have sensible business models. Uh, we get to see companies that have real expertise. We get to see companies that have genuinely uh, different technology. And this is a good sort of time of reckoning, really, to kind of, you know, split the world dominant players um, from the amateurs that all look good at a time when money was free. I'm always aware. Um, one of my favorite things to do is every time there's a big sort of announcement about a sort of VC doing a sort of series B or a series C, and you, you see all this vast amounts of money that companies make, you know, if you then go and look into the founders of these companies, um, it's very unusual that we find a founder that has expertise, which is particularly relevant for the company they are trying to grow. You know, you will see all manner of uh, reimagined bathroom companies or uh, reinvigorated clothing sellers. And when you actually look into the backgrounds of people, you realize, you know, they're simply well-connected people um, who got bored of working with Golden Smacks. Or you see people who, um, you know, have a good network of sort of privileged people to help them get funding. Um, but there's a lot of companies out there that have been able to appear to be wonderful while having no real specific expertise, either in the category um, or even the general notion of retailing. I will need you to define golden smacks. <laughs> is that is that what I heard? <laughs> I think I misspoke. Uh, Goldman Sachs. Oh, Goldman. Yeah. <laughs> I heard the same thing, Peter. So I'm don't like, worry. oh, is that a Brit term that I really didn't know? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very technical thing. <laughs> no, I thought it was some charming thing from your culture. <laughs> oh my god, I love it. It's a British thing. No, but I would totally agree with you. You know, I was we were. Uh, <laughs> I was recording a podcast uh, with my other co-host, Rob, the other day with uh, uh, Maytab Bogle from Carta Ventures, it's called, and they really focus on turning around distressed DTCs. And to hear him talk about yeah. the, the sort of the, the, the uh, roadmap that they use to go in and turn it around, it's, it's, there's nothing shocking there. It's like no. use Lean Six and know how to, you know, know how to focus your marketing and understand your consumer. But, but I, I agree with you that uh, sometimes there's people who either go in with a great product idea but don't have the the skills to actually pull off the operational necess necessity of it, or it's just people who have access to funds that thought they'd give it a shot. And I think to your point, there's going to be a bit of a calling of the herd, painfully. I think. Uh, over this next period. Yeah, and I, I don't think that necessarily needs to be something which is traumatic for the entire industry. Yeah. Um, again, I, I think we've almost had an environment where, you know, four to three years ago, most of these companies were not great companies. They're not, they weren't wonderful ideas, you know, to sell pot scrubbers direct to consumer, you know, wasn't really a way to sort of guaranteed life of, of luxury. Um, it's almost like people went around the house and around the garage and they just picked up things and they thought, how do we turn this into a direct consumer brand? Um, and there were many companies that were run by people who, who didn't have 
particular expertise. They didn't have an idea which was groundbreaking. Um, they just had a network of people and, and access to money. Um, and the reality is that retail is a wonderful and sort of magical and mysterious industry. How people behave um, is really weird. Um, but world-class retailers are just incredible at it. A good friend of mine was a buyer uh, for the world's largest clothing company at the time called Primark. Um, and he would go around the world and decide what would sell. And he just had an incredible instinct for what trends were coming. Um, and I think often in this world of technology, we've fallen out of love with people who may just be really good at their jobs. And they may have an instinctive understanding of what's going to sell. And they may have a weird ability to get people to buy things they didn't realize they wanted. And I think in a way, technology has sort of forced us to dampen those senses a little bit. I'm curious, Tom, for the, the companies that, let's say, really started to focus on e-commerce during the past years in the pandemic, and to your point, have a bit of skewed data because of the way the world has been operating. Do you think that they should use the insights and the data that they gathered from the two years as a baseline to predict what's coming next? Or do they really need to kind of level set how they're thinking about the future since the last two years were just such a crazy conundrum? It's, it's a very good question, and perhaps I'm being offensively blunt here. Um, but if in 2016 you looked at the growth of e-commerce, it was one of the most predictable growth curves you could ever imagine. I mean, there, there wasn't anything in that. Uh, going back to 2001, that no sort of sensible person couldn't look at and see, oh, wow, e-commerce is going to be a bit of a thing. Um, you can even break it down by category. The, the lines are incredibly easy to interpolate from. Um, we then had 2020, 2021, which was always going to be an exceptional period of time. Um, and it was very obvious to me, looking at people around the world, to see that what we had was a sort of paradigm which made sense. So when everybody is at home, it makes sense for every phone call to be a video call because we're all at home. And similarly, we're at home, so every delivery makes sense. Um, we're at home, um, so there's, there's no sort of challenges to life whatsoever. Maybe we're at home because we're forced to be at home, or maybe we're at home because we're anxious. Um, the moment you have to pick up your daughter or son from gymnastics, um, the moment that you have to go into the office um, on a Tuesday and a Thursday, um, the moment that you go and see your grandma at the weekend, all of a sudden you're entering a different paradigm where it makes sense to kind of prick up the gro to pick up the groceries uh, between judo and a tennis lesson. It makes sense to have a little look in the clothing store, you know, because your grandma's running a bit late. Like all of a sudden we entered the paradigm of the hybrid world. Um, and it seemed quite obvious to me that in that world, we would see slight extensions of the behavior that we introduced in 2020, but we wouldn't see a full scale um, revision uh, to a new sort of paradigm. Like we would always return to something more like normal because we kind of chose it this way. I mean, for a lot of people going to a grocery store is quite fun. Um, for a lot of people going shopping for your prom dress is a sort of rite of passage. Um, for a lot of things that we buy, doing it in person is better. You know, try and order some car tires to get delivered and then put them on yourself. 
Um, so I think in a way the pandemic's been a very good exercise in realizing how quickly we remove ourselves from reality and how insular we can be in our thinking and how keen we are to kind of claim that everything is different. You know, we, we fell in love with the idea that everything was different and everything uh, was going to be like we've never seen it before. And actually a lot of human behaviors and habits are very deeply entrenched. Um, and a lot of human instincts have evolved um, to sort of uh, be seen the way they are today because that's how humans like to behave. And sometimes I wonder if, if what's, what's really fundamentally changed uh, is not sort of the uh, impetus behind buying and shopping, but rather the speed and scale and, and uh, sort of uh, <laughs> nonlinear nature of the buying journey that, that, that needs to be understood and accommodated for, which can often be helped by by technology, you know, when when a lot of shopping is sort of monitored and and then run by algorithms, and that change happens much more quickly than does the shopping experience in a store. Like keeping on top of all that, and then figuring out where is the consumer going to want to engage with you and being ready. I would imagine that takes um, where you talked about earlier. So many of the things you said are like. It slightly helps. It marginally, you know, that none of these things are groundbreaking, but in total, <laughs> do, do essentially mean a transformation, but because they add up to something that is different. And I'm just wondering when you think about, you know, looking forward, we're, I hate to say this, but in May, we're, uh, you know, when we're recording this, we're getting close to 2023 planning and sort of where are we going to invest next? for this next 18 month, two year, three year schedule. And when you think about technologies that might play a role in that, what do you think that no one's talking about that our planners should be paying attention to in, in retail and, and brand manufacturing? Yeah, the very hard thing about retail is it's full of these complete opposites. Um, so there are some times in life where you want the biggest choice you can imagine. You know, if you're buying car parts, you need to have access to everything. And there are some times where you want to have the smallest choice. Um, there are some times when you're buying things for pleasure and it's a beautiful process that you want to maximize. And there are other times when you're almost procuring things and you want things to land upon your doorstep with as little thought as possible. Um, and we tend to operate in all of these different ways at the same time. You know, so some of the olive oil I have in my cupboard will be olive oil that I bought with no need to have olive oil whatsoever. But I got sort of seduced in some Tuscan hill town, you know, by somebody telling me all about the soil of the local area. Mm -hmm. um, and there'll be other olive oil in my cupboard, which is a sort of Walmart, you know, value special, um, where I was just running around Walmart quite stressed one day, chucking everything in the trolley, you know, before people came over for a dinner party. And to deal with the complete width of activities we have is very difficult. Um, one thing I will always maintain, especially in the online world, is anything that makes things quicker and easier is a must. Um, it's a very boring bit of technology to talk about now that when I talked about in 2016, everyone thought I was exciting. Uh, but the QR code is huge. Mm -hmm. um, I should be able to buy anything from a hotel room that I stay in simply by hovering my phone near it. Um, I should be able to walk around any store 
and order any product to get delivered at home uh, by taking a post photograph of the of a QR code. Um, I should be able to reorder the same pair of jeans which I finally found fit me by snapping a picture with a QR code. Um, the moment we realize that the entire world that we walk around is effectively one big catalog, and the moment we realize that anything that can be done to shorten the process from, oh, that looks nice to it arriving, um, is key. Um, so that involves things like QR codes, but also technology like image recognition. Um, every step that gets in the way must be uh, smoothed over. You know, if you're not integrating Apple Pay or Google Pay or Samsung Pay, um, you know, I'm very confused for you. Um, yeah, was, and just uh, removing steps from every process. Yeah, I, I was... Um... I was paying attention to some of what was coming out of the Google developer conference yes. and a lot of their work around image recognition and the connection of it to what you've got to a brand, like kind of uh, almost really getting to a place where they can really knit those things together in an impressive yeah. way. I'm, I'm super excited about that. I can't wait to see that sort of start to really take hold. Absolutely. And then you see a mind shift where actually social networks like Pinterest become the world's biggest catalog, not a place to advertise. Um, you start to see everything become the shelf, basically. Um, you know, I think sizing is interesting. Um, you know, I know your podcast isn't specifically about fashion by any means, but basically the entire profit margin of the entire fashion industry is taken away by vanity sizing, um, clothes that are not the same shape and size they should be and people buying the wrong size because they're confused. Um, it seems remarkable to me that there's not more of a, a sort of personalized approach towards shopping where um, your precise size is known and stored as a sort of uh, API almost. And then every single fashion store you visit you know, only shows you clothes that's going to fit you. Oh my um, gosh. Can that happen, please? I would love that. <laughs> I vote for that. <laughs> uh, uh, my COVID pounds are just <laughs> now still making my shopping life uh, yeah. and my, my, and myself, uh, myself image very, uh, very challenging. Yeah. And these are not new technologies. I mean, image recognition is not new. Um, QR codes are not new. Um, decent um, sort of 3D camera applications are not new. It, it's a question of using what we have in a more imaginative way. I'm curious, Tom, about the, the virtual experience or AR or all the different types of kind of seeing things more in real life. Like I know when you buy furniture, right? Like you can picture yeah. it in your room. Um, do you think that that is going to become more mainstream with the world of, dare I say, the metaverse and everything that's happening? Do you think that will shift more towards that or more stores or categories are banking on the hybrid approach where people are going to come in store to actually try on or experience those things? Yeah, it's, it's very easy for me to sound miserable here. So let me try and um, answer this question in the right sort of way. Um, there are spectacular things that we can do with existing technology. You know, the ability to buy things online and pick up in store is, is absolutely magical. And by implementing solutions like that, that use your GPS of your phone to make sure that 
you know, the person comes out to your car nice and quickly. Things like that really are quite transformative. You know, they really will increase the sort of profit margin in, in places where it's currently difficult to eke out a profit. Um, the ability to have clothes at the right size, the ability to uh, personalize the storefronts that you create to suggest products that people are more likely to like. Uh, these are things which have really huge implications on the bottom line. Um, and they mainly involve taking things away. They mainly involve removing experiences. The moment you sort of add an experience, people in our industry love it because we get to talk about something we've done. You know, if there's a new app, you know, for Lululemon, that means you can now, you know, figure out where the cotton was grown for your sweatpants. Um, it's great because we've done something extra. We've made something. And that means there's a new part of the purchase experience with a new thing. But I think most of the times people are actually looking for less. Um, most of the time, the moment you have a viewfinder to see what the table looks like in your room, some people will look at it and then go, oh, yeah, that works really well. Um, but there'll be lots of other people that realize it doesn't quite fit. And there'll be lots of other people that have doubts about it. There'll be lots of other people that think, oh, I don't think I trust this. Um, and I'm just not convinced that retail is really... Um, solved by the use of technology in these ways. I think um, our job is mainly to get out of the way rather than to introduce new experiences. And I think most people actually have imagination. You know, most people have got a pretty good idea how big a dining chair is. Most people have a pretty good idea of what a console table looks like. Um, it's not a terrible thing um, to sort of let people use their own hands and tape measures uh, to check things for themselves. So, Tom, when you're advising clients, when you're sitting down with people that are trying to make some of these choices of where to put their energies, their money uh, to, to, you know, make more money and, and connect with their consumers, how do you help them, what I imagine is ruthlessly prioritize, uh, if it's away from the shiny and, and towards, to your point, the kind of the simplification, but how do those conversations go and, and how do you, how do you, <laughs> and what sort of tools do you have in your toolkit to, they, to they don't go them? very well because, um, <laughs> because what you're supposed to do in my position is I'm supposed to be in the art of confusion. I'm supposed to be in the area where you ask people, you know, what are you doing about blockchain? Like I'm, I'm supposed to come to oh, this God. industry and make people feel worried um, that they're not doing enough and the thing they need to do involves technology and writing me a check. Um, and the sad truth is that I'm not really prepared to behave that way. And what I say to them is go and visit five of your stores, you know, not in the same town, you know, over the next three weeks as you go about your life, make it a habit to visit your local store um, and observe people. And, you know, try and if you work for Home Depot, try and find a screw to, fit an electrical socket outside on the side of your house. Um, try and take back an item that you've bought by mistake. Try click and collect. Um, look at other people and see how they're behaving. Um, and when you do that, one, it's great fun. I mean, it's actually amazing how fun retail is as a sector. Um, two, it's amazing what you learn. You know, speak to people that work there. Ask them what the biggest challenges that they have are. Um, speak to people who, you know, put out stock in the evening because um, they'll give you all the information that McKinsey would have charged you a million dollars for and not actually told you. Um, so, yeah, go out there. 
um, and, and use those experiences to, to shape what you do next. And one thing in particular, I would say, is if you went to most stores this week, um, you probably would not have a wildly different experience from that that you would have had 20 years ago. You know, most of the products are laid out in a similar way. Um, fashion stores love to think of stores as being a sort of magical maze-like process where there are 17 different pairs of jeans and they're all hidden in different corners of the store um, with sort of secondary and uh, tertiary placements of the same items. Um, you know, the fundamentals of retail are actually quite straightforward. You know, make it easy for people to find what they went in for. Add a little bit of delight, which means that people pick up something else. Uh, make sure that you can serve them at the tills very quickly. Um, you know, make people feel good about the decision they've made. And quite often these things come down to having the right sizes on display. Uh, they come down to having inventory systems where people don't have to phone up 20 stores nearby to see if they've got them in stock. And instead, someone can go on a computer system and get accurate um, real-time inventory. Um, you know, the, the online world is full of innovation, but the offline world of retail is strangely lagging. Um, even now, you know, let's say I want a um, UK travel adapter. Let's say I'm flying to the UK tonight and I want a UK travel adapter. I don't think there's any real way for me to find out a store that has that in stock near me other than perhaps Walmart or perhaps Target. And even then, I won't necessarily have a high confidence that them saying they have it in stock means that they do and they know where it is. And things like that are very boring. You know, you don't really win awards at Cannes, you know, for an inventory management system. Um, but actually, I think it's the it's the basics done brilliantly, which becomes the right kind of metaphor to think about the future of retail. Yeah, Brian Solis, who, who um, mm. you know, is the innovation evangelist at Salesforce, he, he put on LinkedIn this uh, sort of this AR app by a company named Dent Reality. A uh, guy's name there is Andrew Hart. And it was an app that knows where things are in the grocery store. And so you're walking in and you, you know, in the, in the example I saw, it was pizza and you put in pizza and it will guide you through the aisles to the pizza. Now, that's super, I mean, I know it's hard because every store is different and all that, but I, but the fundamental help that it gives to the consumer, and I certainly, I take your Home Depot example way to heart, where what you're looking for is a particular lug nut in the nightmare of, of the shelving. And to solve that in a way that I don't have to speak to a human being, um, one, because sometimes they're hard to find, and two, I don't necessarily like to speak to human beings in stores. <laughs> so... Uh, to be able to do that would be an absolute delight. And that those are the kinds of things I look at and uh, maybe because they, you know, address my personality type, but, uh, <laughs> but just think that those are the innovations that actually change the, and to your point, make more convenient the consumer experience more than any sort of, uh, you know, sort of fancy uh, VR, AR that, that just kind of adds to the experience rather yeah. than your, your way in a way, I think, subtracting from the experience, cutting the noise out. Essentially, yeah. It's great to offer people the choice as well. Like uh, yes. I worry slightly um, that we are in a world now which means that if you don't have a smartphone, you know, you can't really exist. You know, you can't really pay for parking um, these days without a smartphone. Um, and, you know, one should be mindful that there are some people that are quite lonely. I mean, part of the reason I love retail is because I spent about the first six years of my career working in it. 
Um, and it was staggering to me how much fun it was to be a sales assistant in an electrical store. And it staggered me how weird people are. Um, and some people just came in because they were lonely, you know, and they'd walk out with a Dyson vacuum cleaner and an extended warranty, um, which is quite an expensive way to make friends. Um, but there, there is something wonderful about people. And I think the more that we are able to cater to the sort of full width of human behaviors and needs mm -hmm. and to offer people what they, they want, um, the better. And, and like you say, it should be rooted in simplicity because actually finding the pizza through an AR experience can be a really straightforward way to do that. Um, I, I worry sometimes there are other people that come to that and they say, great, you know, now that people have found a, a pizza, why don't we gamify it? You know, so you get points <laughs> for finding the pizza. Yeah. You know, why don't we have a sort of metaverse version of the store where you can go and find the pizza in the metaverse and then you get even more points. And the pizza um, NFT. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Speaking yes. of that, yes. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say. Speaking of that, when we think about technology and the things we should or shouldn't be talking about, what would you say are the ones that people should stop talking about? <laughs> I, I'm really um, excited for this answer. And it, it's it's the right question. Um, we have at our disposal so many amazing things, and every time that we talk about the metaverse, is time that we're not spent talking about you know coupons. So every time that we talk about NFTs, is time that we're not spending talking about staff training. Um, so it's not that talking about NFTs is a complete waste of time. It's just that there are other more important things to talk about. I mean, you you could have a project in a retailer called, you know, retailing on the moon. You know, what would our stores look like on the moon? You know, what would it, what would they look like without much gravity? Like, what would they look like with really long lead times because they're on the moon? And you could look at that and say, well, it's worthwhile because one day we might be on the moon, and you know, it's useful to think about these things because it gets our imagination going. And I think that's the spirit in which people are talking about NFTs. I think um, I've made a documentary about NFTs. I know about NFTs. Um, I think they are basically a really bad use of our time. Um, there is a particular use for them in retail, where if you are wanting to create a sort of turbocharged loyalty program where people spend significant amounts of money to become a real participant in your brand, then there is something to be done with NFTs. But that is such a sort of fringe use. And it's also entirely uh, not essential to use NFTs um, that that sort of may, makes the whole thing a bit redundant. So I think, I think NFT thinking, um, I think the metaverse as described as a world built upon the blockchain and that involves sort of web three type dynamics. Um, I also think that's largely a waste of time. Um, we should indeed be thinking about the 3D internet. So we should indeed be thinking about a time where, you know, we spend our life online because that is today. Um, but we should be figuring out ways to sort of bridge the online and the offline. How can we make it easy to buy something on the internet? How can we make it easy to buy something in real life on your phone? You know, that's how we should be thinking about it, you know, rather than sort of replicating the physical world in the virtual world. Because in the metaverse, if you can do absolutely anything, you know, if you can um, sort of get drunk with a famous musician, or if you can go on holiday to, you know, a beach in the Maldives, or if you can, you know, have sex with a supermodel or something, um, I'm not sure why you'd choose to go to Home Depot and buy a fridge, you know. <laughs> There's, there's probably more extravagant uses of your time. 
I love that. And I, I love that <laughs> a big theme of this, of this podcast is, is back to the basics and thinking yes. about simplicity versus complexity. Uh, and what you just said about bridging online and offline, I think that that needs to be the core of what we are all talking about, right? Because commerce is online and offline. And how can yes. you get your consumers to to the point of human behavior, behavior, live their lives effectively using both in-store and online. And at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. I have this sort of weird dream that you might go into a, you know, a, a, a medium-end uh, clothing store like H&M or something, um, and there'd be a, a sort of mannequin dressed in clothes, and you'd see the T-shirt and think, oh, that's quite nice. Um, and then you'd sort of hover your phone near it and it would say, you know, here are three other items that this T-shirt goes with brilliantly. You know, these two are in stock. Press this button and they'll bring them out to the desk. Um, here are five pairs of shoes that, that go with them. You know, we only have three of them in stock. Here are the other two. You know, press this button and they'll be delivered to you later. Um, and then over a period of time, knowing the items that you bought from that store, you know, you'd get an occasional newsletter saying, you know, we know you've got those sneakers and we know you've got this T-shirt. You know, this is a great new pair of pants that we've just brought out that would go really well with them, you know, to buy it. You know, press this button now and within one button press, um, that pair of pants would be winging its way to you. Um, because there are things in retail where we actually care quite a lot. Um, most people would like a, a kettle and a toaster uh, that match each other. Um, it seems quite logical that you might buy things like a kitchen bundle, where rather than spending like every living hour of the day for three weekends traipsing around retail stores, um, you couldn't just sort of get like four suggested kitchens that would include all the different products that go together. Um, and then you get sort of upsold on a service package where, you know, someone will maintain all of those items and, uh, you know, may maybe you get a, a sort of box of uh, groceries delivered that, that sort of work well with the items that you've just bought. There seems to be so much room for imagination and kind of joining up the dots. Um, and it's almost joining up the dots, which is what this is really about, which seems to sort of go on. Unloved because I don't think people really have jobs that deal with the complexity of the sort of interlinks between different products. You know, some company probably somewhere has like the global head of fridges, the global head of toasters, you know, the regional sales manager um, for dishwashers. Um, and actually what you need is a much more sort of a holistic way to think about this stuff. Yeah, it reminds me so much of a of a recent book that I read, and and we had one of the authors on the podcast, uh, Lauren Nordgren and David Chantal, who are from the mm. Kellogg School, wrote a book called The Human Element, mm. which um, which it, it, the subtitle is Overcoming the Resistance That Awaits New Ideas, and they yeah. talked about how so often people in you know when you, whatever problem you're trying to solve or something that you'll you're more likely to put energy and thought into the fuel like how do i get this out to more people or how do i make this bigger rather than focusing on the frictions mm. and so the the whole book was about how to really uh understand what the frictions are and then how to transform them and it, and what you're talking about is exactly like that to me where if companies spend a lot more time on what are the things that stand in the way of a consumer making the delightful purchase, uh, yeah. then, then you'd probably find your innovations that are worth investing in. And then the technologies follow, right? Yes. 
I do, I do worry about this quite a lot, actually, um, partly because my whole consultancy company is based on this way of thinking um, and sort of reduction and simplicity mm-hmm. and doing the little things that matter. And I'm just not that sure that companies really want to buy that because I, I do think it's quite easy to get promoted into a company yes. um, within a company by announcing a new initiative with NFTs. You know, I do think if you do a flagship store for the future, and it's got a sort of robot um, at the gateway, you know, like a pepper robot holding an iPad, then I think it looks really good in the company report. Um, You know, if you say, you know, actually we didn't put a robot in this bank branch, but we did make it really easy to sign up for a new account, you can't really take a picture of something that's less. Um, It's quite hard to brag about less as well. You know, if you're able to do something really insignificant that increases uh, coupon redemption by sort of 1%, but it doesn't look good in a photo and it doesn't sound that exciting in a press release, then it it kind of becomes quite useless, I think, to people in a way. Um, So I'm not not sure how we bring about this thinking. Um, I'm not sure how we celebrate less, how we celebrate sort of sophistication and discernment. It's a it's a great call out. I'm not sure. <laughs> I know I know either. Except, I mean, I hate to. I talked with another author recently, but I, I'm doing a, fa- a fake cigarette smoke thing, which you know, our <laughs> listeners can't see. But um, but um, Fred Reichel, who who created the NPS score essentially and yeah. built an industry around it, talks a lot about this in his latest book, where he part of it is is building up the data that really matters. Like if, if you are a store that d- does that experience that you described where you can go in and scan the t-shirt, your conversion rates are going to go up dramatically. You know, like the stuff that yeah. really matters. And, and so it's figuring out what are the ways to measure the impacts uh, in a way that is undeniable and yeah. always easier said than done. But I, I, I kind of think, I know it's not the... I know what you're talking about, like promotions and careers, and and when people are desperate, they look for the shiny, and um, and so uh, yeah, I, I don't, I obviously don't have the answer, but I do feel like it. At the end of the day, it does get back to the customer and to the numbers. And I, I, I worry. I also, a bit. Oh, carry on, Lauren. No, go ahead, Tom. Um, I, I worry a bit that we have fallen so much in love with data that we require it for anything. I mean, I, I feel like these days you could literally invent the wheel and someone would say, you know, it's great you've invented the wheel, Lauren, um, but today's actually not innovation day. You know, can you bring that back on Thursday because we're going to have an innovation workshop? And then someone else is going to say, well, you know, we weren't really looking for a wheel. You know, have you got any data to show that people wanted wheels? Um, <laughs> you know, the fire guy came in last week and we really dig that idea, but we can't find budget for fire. Um, I, I worry that we we sort of sanitize and we sort of process size everything so much. The really good ideas um, that you can't really support with much data, but you feel in your heart. You know, I, I feel like um, it's quite hard to operate in these cultures now. Yeah. I, um, I see quite a lot of ads on Twitter um, that really annoy me because they appear too many times and I block the company. And I think I wonder if anyone's tracking how many people blocked the company after seeing an ad from them. Um, I wonder in a world of of newsletters, which are very enthusiastic and very frequent, you know, obviously someone's tracking how many times people click on it. Obviously someone's tracking how much stuff they sell from it, but is anyone caring about how many people unsubscribed? 
And is anyone caring about the degree to which you could have kept that customer? Because actually, you know, having me check your emails from you once every six months um, is far more preferable than me just blocking you from my email inbox or me unsubscribing and never to subscribe again. But we don't tend to measure negative things or the kind of lack of good things happening. Um, so I think we need a more sophisticated conversation about this stuff. Yeah. I, 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 I also think that there's like a, I would say there's a place for everything, right? When we think about innovation and we think yes. about the basics and, and the business, like there's, there's a world where, yes, it is someone's job at a company to think about innovation, right? It, it, you always need to think about what's coming next, what's happening, but that shouldn't be the, the focus and North star. It should be the being brilliant at the basics and figuring out your customer and figuring out what Tom, to your point, what data you, you need, what you need to use, what it's actually telling you. And that's the North star of the company, what you're focusing on, but there is a place I believe for, for innovation and staying on top of it, but it shouldn't be, Hey, what's the next shiny object to make sure that we're out there and we're staying, staying up to date, but just kind of staying on top of it and focusing on it and making calculated and informed decisions about if it's the right path. I feel like that fits yeah. with innovation. Yeah. And one which recognizes the brilliance of the people that you employ. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, Retail is quite spectacular in that there is genuinely something completely magical and mysterious about it. And the people I know who are good at retail are really good at retail and I trust their judgment. And I don't know what data they use, probably not that much. They're probably used to, they're probably forced to use data um, sort of retrospectively to sell in ideas they had with their gut. And I think, um, I don't know, maybe we need to trust people more. Maybe we need to sort of recognize there's a type of brilliance that we can't really understand. Uh, in the same way that people in fashion are able to understand the world and the zeitgeist in ways that we don't really understand. Um, and there's a sort of empathy I think people have. Um, again, I don't want to sort of rant too much, but I think often within our companies, we surround ourselves with people that don't make us realize how strange we've become. Um, and my favorite thing to do with clients, you know, let, let's say your, your client sells um, margarine, you know, they, they spend all day in sort of margarine workshops and they spend all day talking about yellow fats with other people and they spend all their day sort of wandering around their brand onion. And I'd like to sort of, I'd like to send to these people, you know, how much do you think about, um, you know, gasoline? And they'll be like, oh, not very much. And I'm like, well, the people who work in gasoline marketing are obsessed with gasoline and their brand as you are with your type of margarine, you know. How much do you think about your shampoo? Not very much. Well, the people who work in shampoo are also spending all day thinking about this. And they need to sort of come to your sector almost with a sort of informed naivety where you're aware that your brand is really important, but you're not that interested in it. Where you're aware that there are only so many you know, companies that have permission uh, to do things that you're trying to do. Um, and, and just to sort of approach your attitude towards marketing and sales with a bit more of a kind of realistic perspective of the role that this company plays in people's lives. And that is in no way to be sort of depressing about it. It's just to be aware that actually, you know, maybe packaging is, is the big marketing pull for next year. Um, you know, maybe a new uh, product um, that, you know, spans the line between um, ketchup and brown sauce. Um, you know, maybe the things that you need to do are actually quite simple things that you need to do really well. 
rather than complicated things to dabble with. Well, I, I, Tom, I, you know, I, th I think we, we joyfully turned this into kind of a megasode because <laughs> we had so much to talk about. And I really appreciate you uh, going on this journey with us. And, and I, I love for me, the takeaway is is with all of the noise in the world. And we started out talking about the particular noise in the world today and probably over the next several quarters is to try and tune out the noise and get to that simplicity of, of what will actually transform in some ways, maybe in a reductive way, a consumer's experience to discover, uh, to discover you, uh, to discover your brand, to, to find their way to it in a, in a really uh, simple way. And I, I, I love that. And I really appreciate you uh, sharing it with us. My pleasure. Thanks again to Tom for his golden snacks and challenging observations. Keep up with what we are up to at the DSI. The blue Become the Member button at digitalshelfinstitute.org is waiting for your click. Thanks as always for being part of our community.